Good morning. Merry Christmas. Yes, you can say it back. That's okay. I was hesitant. We can work with that. We'll continue. I've been excited about starting the Advent series today. And I woke up and it's 80 degrees. I was tempted to show up in cargo shorts and a Christmas sweater. But I did not. So we will continue on as if the weather matched the time of year. Let's, uh, let's pray together, and then we'll dive into the text. Teach us, O Lord, the way of your statutes, and I will keep it to the end. Give us understanding that we may keep your law and observe it with our whole hearts. Lead us in the path of your commandments, for I delight in it. Incline my heart to your testimonies and not to selfish gain. Turn my eyes from looking at worthless things. Give me life in your ways. Confirm to your servant your promise that you may be feared. Turn away the reproach that we dread, for your rules are good. Behold, we long for your precepts. In your righteousness, give us life. Lord, this morning as we consider Uh, Your purposes during this Christmas season, we come before you humbly, mindful that the story that you've been telling is is a big story with lots of parts, and we are privileged to be on the storyline, as we've seen in the previous weeks. We're privileged to be called your dwelling place. Yet without our Old Testaments, we we don't know what that means. We don't know how big of a deal that is. And so my prayer, Lord, this morning is first a prayer of thanks that you have included us in the story and that we are here gathered as your children, your ambassadors, your clay vessels set aside, fragile and common as we are, to be used as you see fit. Lord, we have a sweet message to proclaim We have a sweet message to engage and be engaged by this morning as we anticipate the coming of Christ. I pray, Lord, for a steadfastness during our time this morning, that each of us, myself included, would stay focused. I also pray for an ability to climb into the story, that each of us sitting here, though we all get here with different backgrounds and maybe different dynamics that have played into the morning, that each of us could stop and listen and consider our Lord and consider the story and really climb in. Lord, I want to pray for the Heights Church in Dallas, Pastor Gary Singleton. Encouraged to find out that we're preaching on the same thing this morning as we go back to the beginning of the story. I pray uh, for his family, that he would be leading them well and really enjoying you, not distracted, but focused. I pray that his time in the pulpit this morning would be fruitful and that you would bless his words and bless the people as they hear them. Lord, we love you very much. We thank you for Jesus. I'm thankful for the words that we just sang, that that we have joy and that there is joy in this world because this world is not completely destitute and without hope, but in Christ we have great hope. And I pray that indeed as we engage the story this morning that our hearts would prepare room, 
that our hearts would not be filled with so many other desires and so many other treasures and so many other pursuits that there's no room for Jesus during the month of December. Indeed, let our hearts prepare room. Use this time as you see fit. I trust you, Lord. We believe and pray that you would help our unbelief through these truths. Pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said before, Merry Christmas. This year, um, through prayer and discussion, uh, we've decided to spend the month of December preaching through an Advent series. Now, Advent itself is not something, if you were to do your search in your Bible and look for Advent, it's not something you're going to find in your Bible. Um, because of that, uh, celebrating it is something that's optional. It's, it's a tool. And I want you all to see it as such as we engage it this morning. It's a tool, and it has some specific purposes. Uh, celebrating it is something that's optional. In years past, we've often chosen to continue preaching through uh, John, particularly as we spent the better part of a century in John. But this year, uh, we feel it would be best to very intentionally focus on Jesus and on Jesus' coming to earth. As we reflected on our time in December last year, we kind of felt like we didn't really ramp up to Christmas, but that we kind of we pushed through and we persevered and it kind of came and went. And as a church, we didn't spend a whole lot of time talking about the coming of Jesus. And we wanted that to be different this year. And so we're going to spend this month particularly focused on Jesus' coming to earth. This season can often come and go, leaving us tired and spent while not spending much time truly appreciating Jesus. We don't want you to get wrapped up in the commercialism and the materialism and the worldliness that often plagues many believers this time of year. But through prayer, we've decided to take what we're hoping is a proactive approach to this problem. I'll share an example to explain what I mean. If I don't want you to think about the color blue, I could say, okay, everyone in the room, don't think about the color blue. What color are you thinking of right now? Purple. There's one obedient believer who was able to st be steadfast. Yeah, generally, that approach could, could potentially perpetuate the problem and not really leave you with much in the way of tools, much in the way of something to help me not think of thing, that thing. But I could also get you to not think of the color blue by telling you to think of the color red. So what we're doing this morning is instead of preaching on the pitfalls of materialism and warning you to steer clear, instead of taking that approach, we've decided to encourage you lovingly to consider Christ. Consider Christ. For five weeks, we're going to look at the beauty of our Savior from many different angles. And we're going to try to exhaust every angle that we can see of his beauty, but I want you to know ahead of time, we won't exhaust it. His beauty is unending, but we want you to consider it, like really take it in. Look at the different facets His, his unfathomable glory has spanned the years. And our story that we're looking at this morning is the story of a people. And it goes back to the dawn of creation. So from the very beginning, the beauty of Christ has been revealed to us in different ways by God. Hear that at the beginning of this message. From the very beginning, the beauty of Christ has been revealed to us by God. It wasn't just in the manger where it started. It wasn't, okay, finally he was born so we can behold his beauty, but rather from the very beginning, God has shown us the beauty of Jesus Christ in a number of different ways. We're going to look at those this morning. So I've got the challenge of preaching the first of the Advent series. 
And the reason that I call it a challenge is that I, I really want to get to the part about Jesus conquering the world, saving us, redeeming us. I really want to get to the part about Jesus, and I want to spill the beans. I want to deliver that punchline. But because our story is the story of a people, what we're going to have to do this morning, and it's going to take some work, we're going to have to go back thousands of years. We're going to have to climb into the anticipation and even the angst that our forefathers felt as they anticipated the first advent. On December 25th, we celebrate the coming of Jesus. The word advent means coming. But for us, we generally celebrate that first advent when Jesus came to earth as a baby in a manger. In a few weeks, we're going to be preaching on that second advent where Christians eagerly anticipate the return of our Lord and Savior as he comes and establishes his kingdom in a new heavens and a new earth. So what I want us to see as we begin this series this morning is that our time really during this Advent series will serve as a sort of exercise that should be common to not just December, but our whole lives as Christians. Because our whole life as Christians is a life of looking back and a life of looking forward. So this exercise that we go through as we consider Advent is an exercise of obedience that should be common to the Christian, a life of reflection and a life of anticipation. We're not anticipating rightly if we're not reflecting rightly, and we're not reflecting rightly if we're not anticipating rightly. So this exercise we're going to go through in the month of December is something that we hope maybe quickens you as families to be doing this regularly, going back, looking at the Word, and anticipating what Jesus has in store in the future. So here, 2,000 years later, after the first advent, what I want us to remember is that the first advent was anticipated for thousands of years. Hear that. That's a really important part this morning. That first advent was anticipated for thousands of years, and that's the part of the story we're going to climb into this morning. That's the part of the story we're going to climb into, the time where God's people eagerly anticipated that first advent. So turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. This is Paul's letter to the Colossian church, and he's explaining to them what it means to be alive in Christ. He's explaining, he's saying, you guys are Christians now. Jesus has done something wonderful and mighty, and y'all are different now. You don't just have to live according to the way that things were, but the way that things were are informing the way that you're supposed to live now. He's explaining what it means to be alive in Christ, and he particularly says in verse 14, he says, he said, Jesus set aside nailing it to the cross. He disarmed all the rulers and authorities, put them to open shame by triumphing over them. Look at Colossians 2.16. He's just pointed to the cross, and look at what he says about what Jesus accomplished. He says, therefore, in Colossians 2.16, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. These things, these Old Testament things we're going to climb into in the story this morning are a shadow of things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So though I'm not going to deliver the punchline yet, and I want to build up that angst, we have to spend some time in that shadow. In a few weeks, we'll get to the substance, but to appreciate the substance... We'll need to spend some time in the shadows, for it's in the shadows that the itch will be developed. You've heard Ben talk about that, sort of developing the itch, like the itch will be developed in the shadows. 
the angst will be understood in the shadows and really the fulfillment of that anticipation will be much fuller in the shadows. So every time I mention shadow this morning, y'all can know the substance belongs to Jesus. But we're looking at the shadow on purpose to let it cause something in us that is a spirit-led thing designed by God. To give an example of the difference between shadow and substance, on the front door of our house, who has like your normal door and then like a glass door or a screen door? How many of y'all have those? Okay, fantastic. Um, It really doesn't matter. I was just looking for a little anticipation. I look a little tired. So um, what we have uh, is we have a normal door and we usually leave that open and then we have a glass door that is shut. And our house is sort of positioned in such a way that if someone's coming up the front walkway, you'll see their shadow before you see them. Y'all might be thinking that's creepy. It's not creepy. Just put that out of your mind. This is a positive example, not a negative example. So you can see their shadow before you see them, especially if the sun is there right behind them. And so when someone's walking up our front walkway, they'll cast a shadow into our entryway and all the way into our living room. Now, the point is you'll see the shadow before you see the person. If I happen to be home with all four kids and mommy's on the way home and I see that shadow, I'm filled with a sort of excitement that I can't fully explain. Maybe even relief as I see the shadow. But what's more joyful? Seeing her shadow or seeing her? What's more joyful? Well, obviously seeing her. I can't wrap my arms around a shadow. I can't sit with a shadow and discuss the details of the day. So seeing her is more joyful than seeing the shadow. However, there is something that happens when you see the shadow. Something happens. It makes me anticipate her arrival all the more. So if all I saw was the shadow, I'd certainly be filled with a sort of anxious, why doesn't she come inside yet? All I see is shadow. But there's something that happens when you see that shadow. It's not as good as wrapping your arms around her, but the shadow does something. So this morning we're going to spend some time in those thousands of years of shadow that preceded the first advent of Jesus. And and my hope is that it will do sort of the same thing to us in our hearts as we anticipate our Jesus. A little time with only the shadows of Christ will cause us to appreciate the substance of Christ that much more. Already in Colossians 2, we've seen some parts of the shadow, dietary laws, what the Old Testament Jew could eat or drink or not eat or not drink. God calls that shadow. Festivals, the new moon, the Sabbath. God calls that shadow. Turn over to Hebrews 10. It's going to be to the right just a little bit. We should all know where Hebrews is at this point. Hebrews 10, verse 1 says, For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered up every year make perfect those who draw near. So here you see a shadow, and the shadow itself It's saying they can't make perfect those who are drawing near. So there's an anticipation that comes in on, well, what makes them perfect when they draw near? There's an anticipation there. So here we see the law, all of its included sacrifices, as well as its offerings. God calls that shadow. Turn over to the left a little bit to Hebrews 8, 1 through 5. 
Now the point in what we are saying is this. I like it when authors of books of the Bible do that. Because sometimes you're reading the Bible, you're like, what is the point? And when the author says this, it's encouraging to me. Now the point is this. We have such a high priest, one who is seated at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven. A minister in the holy places in the true tent that the Lord set up, not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer gifts and sacrifices, thus it's necessary for this priest also to have something to offer. Now if he were on earth, he would not be a priest at all, since there are priests who offer gifts according to the law. And listen to this, they serve a copy and shadow of the heavenly things. For when Moses was about to erect the tent, he was instructed by God, a copy and a shadow of heavenly things. So the high priest, the priesthood, all of their offerings, all of those tabernacle details, which we're gonna go into more next week, all of that God calls shadow. But what we need to see is that God has chosen in his breathed out word to explain that the life of the Old Testament Jew was a life of shadow. Now, what did the Jew know it as? They just knew it as life, right? Like we can look back and with this breathed out word, which makes us to where we're no longer incompetent and unequipped, but competent and equipped, we can take this and look back and say that was shadow. But for the Old Testament Jew, it was just life. But it was structured by God in a way that they were continually looking forward. We're going to look specifically at how they were continually looking forward. It was structured by God in such a way that they were continually anticipating something better and something complete. And the itch came at the beginning. Turn to Genesis 3. A few weeks ago, Ben explained this passage, and we kind of laughed about it. So I was like, man, you're stealing the Advent thunder, Ben. You, you went to Genesis 3, and we're going to have the Advent series. And so, so, you know, you already went there. And it, it's kind of crazy to think that, oh, we couldn't go there again. God forbid we repeat something that we all need to hear all the time. So we were laughing about it, saying, let's just teach it again and see what happens. Maybe it would be beneficial to God's people. So he, he explained it a few weeks ago and did a great job. So I'm not re-explaining it to clean up his mess or anything. He really did a great job. Y'all should go back and listen to that sermon. However, we're going to climb back into it this morning. The context is that God has created all things created. They're good. He creates Adam and Eve. He blesses them. He puts them in the Garden of Eden to keep it and to work it. He gives them some rules. He gives them the outline of what it's supposed to be like in the garden. They're walking with garden. They're walking with God in the cool of the day in the garden. The serpent comes along and gets them to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and that is the tree that God has said, don't eat from that tree. And so they have eaten from that tree. What I want us to see this morning is that sin separates you from God. I'm not going to assume that everyone in here is a Christian and knows all the details of sin and God and redemption and Jesus. If you're in here this morning, you need to know that sin separates you from God. We're going to look at how that happens here in Genesis 3. But that's our context. So before I read this, I want, to, I want us to remember, it is not the case that the Old Testament Jew has their story and the New Testament Christian has their story. It's the same story. Jesus wasn't an afterthought. So this story about the fall of man is, is our story. Everyone in this room is fallen. So what I want us to do is climb in. 
We have each sinned against a holy God and our sin separates us from God. So each of us sitting here, I want you to imagine you're hiding with Adam and Eve behind the tree. Think of how, what sin does to you. Sin makes you stupid. We don't use that word in our house a lot except for when we're talking about sin and idols. So we can use it here. They hid from God, the creator of trees, behind a tree. You see this? We're hiding with them this morning. We're with them, crouched down behind the tree. We hide with Adam and Eve, and we're with them, blaming each other for the mess that we're in. Blaming one another, because that's what they did. And not just that, but we're with them, covered in the pathetic, withering fig leaves. Imagine if I tried to make an outfit out of this plant. It would not last long. It's not a good remedy to a problem of nakedness. So we're with them, hiding behind the tree, blaming each other, clothed in a ridiculous attempt at covering our own nakedness. And with Adam and Eve, we hear God's words in verses 9 through 15. We're trembling with Adam and Eve. We've disobeyed God. God knows it. We know it. And we hear these words. But the Lord called to the man and said, where are you? As if he didn't know. The man said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman you gave me, it's her fault. She gave me fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is it that you have done? The woman said, the serpent, it's not my fault. The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, what I want us to see real quick, God gives the man a chance to talk. He gives the woman a chance to talk. He does not give the the serpent a chance to talk. I want you to see the dominion that God has in his garden that he planted. He doesn't give the serpent a chance to say, and what's your excuse, little one on the ground? He says this, because you have done this, cursed Are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field? On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Some (coughs) translations say crush. I like that a little bit better. Now, at this point with Adam and Eve, when we hear that, Remember, we're behind the tree. We're in the withering fig leaves. We're blaming each other. We're scared because God is here. We're naked. We've wronged him. And, and we hear those words. So with Adam and Eve, when we hear those words, we're looking for some offspring, aren't we? Now, remember the context. We don't even know what offspring is. Think about that. Think about it. Yes, God, offspring. Let's get... Adam, do y'all know? what? I, no, okay. Yes, we want it. We don't even know what it is yet. We've done, I was made from a pile of dirt. You were made from my rib. What, what's offspring? But we're certainly anticipating it, particularly anticipating it, particularly the offspring that will bruise and crush the head of the serpent. With Adam and Eve, we're at this point eagerly anticipating the offspring that will return us to our former glory so that we can truly behold God in his infinite glory. The mention of such offspring is like seeing the shadow come up the walkway. You'll make the connection. The mention of that offspring is like seeing the shadow come up the walkway. I'm filled with shadowy anticipation. Write that in your notes. Shadowy anticipation. That's what I'm filled with when I hear God say offspring. 
I want to see the offspring. Do you know why? Because my sin is too great of a burden for me to bear. What happened when I, when I sinned? I'm hiding from God behind a tree in a ridiculous outfit, blaming the one that God blessed me with. My sin is too great a burden for me to bear. Am I looking for that sinless offspring? Absolutely. Eagerly. Consider, though, that even in the shadows, we receive such compassion from our God. I mean, I want you to take this in. It's his creation and his garden and his people. He could have showed up in the garden and said, and this is where when we have a wrong view of God, it, it messes everything up. We just, sometimes we think God's just a mighty smiter who smiteth all that wrong him. And that's not how it works. He's just. He'll execute judgment. But he's full of compassion to a degree that most of us cannot even fathom. The most compassionate person you know is but a mere shadow, a small example of the compassion of God who we serve. He could have showed up and said, well, first created people, you screwed up. I couldn't have made it clearer for you. I couldn't have set you up for success any more than I did. And what did you do? You dropped the ball. You made a mess. What are you going to do about it? God could have said that and been perfectly right, perfectly fair, perfectly just. No one could have said, but God, at any point in that exchange. He could have done that and been perfectly right and just, but instead he says this, as part of my creation, there will be something in the future that you have not yet experienced, and that something is offspring. You will make babies. Adam and Eve, you're going to make babies. And eventually, one will be born that will take care of this problem that you find yourself in today. In my compassion, I provide for you abundantly. And in chapter 4, Eve is pretty excited about her first offspring. We saw that a few weeks ago. Verse 1, she says, Now Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of God. There's an anticipation there that she thinks is being fulfilled. I got one. That offspring thing he mentioned, we got one. His name is Cain. And then in time, guess what? They got another one. His name was Abel. So we, with Adam and Eve, part of our story, we anticipate, which one is it? This is fantastic. We have two possibilities. Well, the Savior be Cain or Abel, but the excitement grows dim, as in time, Cain kills Abel. Abel's dead, so he's not the one. Cain's a murderer. He's not the one. So what do we have? Another sinner. Another one who falls short. So this is not the offspring that we're looking for. We still have that shadowy anticipation when we hear the word offspring, but this is not the offspring that we're looking for. We're not just looking for any offspring. We need one who isn't a sinner. Do you feel that angst? Do you feel with our forefathers the longing of offspring that does not sin, that will crush the serpent's head and return us to our sweet fellowship that we once shared with God? In this shadow, do we not long for something of substance together with our sinning forefathers? Are we longing with our forefathers this morning, aware of our sin and aware of our need for sinless offspring? History continues. We read about Adam's descendants that lead us to Noah. Noah was blameless. 
while the entire rest of the world was, as it says in Genesis, only evil continually. What I want us to see here is as, as it gets, we see Adam and Eve, we see that they have some babies, eventually we get to this part about Noah, but the world has gone horribly backwards from what God had, had intended for them. And what we find is that it got so bad, in fact, that the whole world, it says, every thought was only evil continually. That means you couldn't even find a good intention. Like, some, lots of people do lots of bad things. Sometimes they were good intentions that just went sideways. The world was as such, you couldn't find even a good intention in everybody. They'd taken their eyes off of their creator. So it comes to the point of Noah, and God floods the earth, killing all of humanity with the exception of Noah and his family. That's a lot of dead offspring. So would Noah be our savior? The question we might ask is, is blameless offspring sinless offspring? Because we really need one that isn't a sinner. But in Genesis 9, 20, it says, Noah began after the flood subsided, the earth dried up, the, the, the ark door came down, God opened it for them, in fact, and uh, they, they walk out on dry ground as that happens. It says, Noah began, began to be a man of the soil and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. Though he's blameless, it's not likely that our Savior would get drunk, take off his clothes, and pass out naked. That sounds more like a college student with a lack of self-control than a Savior. It's another sinner. He falls short. That's not sinless offspring. He won't do it. He won't cut it. A shadow. Then we continue reading. We meet Abraham and Sarah. It's in this generation that the shadow grows even greater, and it's by God's design, because what God says to Abraham and Sarah is he says, I'm not talking to just all of creation. I want you to know, Abraham, I'm going to bless the world through your offspring. And man, God just takes this thing that has been a bit broad, and, and by his design, and, and through time, he has said, my people are, are going to be through Abraham. Father Abraham, many sons, many sons had Father Abraham. We have that song because of what God said when he made a covenant with Abraham and said, you know what? Through you. We're going to have an offspring that blesses this earth and that redeems. It's in this generation that the shadow grows greater. God narrows his covenant to the offspring of Abraham. What I want us to see, I and mean, we've covered, I think, about at least a thousand years at this point. Between next week and this week, we're going to cover a lot of the Old Testament in this shadow. But what's remarkable to me is God never lets us take our eyes off of the offspring. He won't do it. He could have had a whole new design with Abraham, saying, you know what, Abraham is going to be different. I'm going to bless through you, and I'm going to do it in this way, this way. But he said it's going to be through your offspring. God won't let us take our eyes off of the offspring, but there is a problem. Abraham and Sarah can't conceive. This is your story. Climbing to it. They can't conceive. That's a big problem. After years of having no children, a heartache which many of us have been familiar with, they're looking at the promises of God and they're saying, we are old, exclamation point. Capital O on old, God. And God says, fear not. And they say to God, we're beyond childbearing years. This is a big promise and we're old, we're beyond childbearing years. And God says, your offspring will be as numerous as the stars in the sky and the sand on the seashore. 
And they essentially say, sand and stars, we don't even have a baby. Not one. Ah is northern for one. We don't have a baby. Not one. In Genesis 17, 16, God meets Abraham with these really sweet words. God goes to him. Even when they doubted, Sarah doubted in front of God at this weird meal that happened. And it was like, she laughed, like, ha, whatever, I'm going to have a baby. God goes to Abraham and says, I will bless her. How sweet is that? I will bless her. Moreover, I will give you a son by her. A son. If you're wanting to begin a long lineage that will lead to sand and, and stars, a son is a good thing. There's a family name that goes on there. I'll give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become nations. Nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. So God takes these unlikely and unexpected people, and he takes these unlikely and these unexpected circumstances, and he uses them for his glory, as he indeed blesses them with a child named Isaac. Think about how awesome it would have been when Isaac was born. I mean, y'all have been at the hospital when a baby's born. There's so much excitement at the hospital we were at, they would play this little doo-doo-doo-doo-doo over the speakers every time a baby was born. And so we're sitting there, it's like, man, that was another baby. It's like, and then after a while, it's like, man, they had a lot of babies today. It's crazy. But there was excitement in every one of them, every time you heard it. With Isaac, can you imagine? They were old, they were beyond childbearing years, and only because God visited them and blessed her and blessed him that they had a child. Can you imagine the excitement of that birth? If ever there was a child who represented hope, Isaac was a child of hope. And so God one day says, Abraham, take your son, your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains, which I shall tell you. What? This is a problem for all of mankind. If this child dies, God's saying, make sure the child dies. If this child dies, there's no covenant, there's no offspring, there's no sand, there's no stars. How can God promise one thing yet seem to undo it with such a request? But through this shadow, what I want us to see is that Abraham teaches us something that is very important to us today. And that something is that if God makes a promise, he keeps it. If God makes a promise... He keeps it. He believed that God held the life of his son in his hands. We see it in Genesis 22.8. Abraham says faithfully to his son, son, his son, the, the child of hope, the son of hope, walking up the mountain with his father, the only offspring that Abraham has, he looks at his dad and says, Where, where's the sacrifice? Oh, man, you can imagine that hit Abraham like a ton of bricks. And Abraham looks at his son and he says in faith in his good God who keeps his promises, son, God will provide for himself the lamb for burnt offering. Would you have that faith? I'd have been freaking out. I'd have been like, son, let's not talk about it. Hoping for the best, expecting the worst. Man, Abraham says, son, don't you ever forget 
God will provide that lamb. He says it with sureness. God will provide the lamb for a burnt offering, and sure enough, they get to the top of the mountain, and as soon as Abraham has the knife out and has his son bound and is about to follow through with God's request and slaughter his only son, Psalm 91 says that God commands the angels to look after his children when they trust him. And sure enough, an angel calls out, Abraham, Abraham. Abraham says, here am I. And the angel says, don't touch him. Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, your beloved son, from me. And they looked up and saw a lamb caught in the thicket by its horns. And together, Abraham and Isaac sacrificed that lamb. They wrestled it out. They put it on the altar. And as an act of worship to a faithful God, they sacrificed to a God who keeps his promises. So in the shadow, this shadow that we see here with Isaac, God reveals the significance of, listen to all the shadowy anticipation, a son, an only son, a beloved son, a sacrifice, and a lamb provided by God. Shadowy anticipation. All those things were made important to God's people through that occurrence. I was, trying to, I was talking to Lindsay. I was like, I can't explain what this is, and I want us to see it clearly. And I almost wanted to just cover the floor in puzzle pieces when you all walked in this morning. I want you to be walking and going, what in the world? They've lost their mind, poinsettias, uh, and puzzle pieces. Because what we're seeing here, it's like pieces of a beautiful puzzle scattered all over the place. And as soon as God puts that puzzle together and we see it in Jesus, it's going to blow our minds. The beauty of it is going to be exceeding. It's like puzzle pieces. All the, the son, only son, beloved son, lamb, sacrifice, hopelessness, child of hope. God's promises, he never breaks. These puzzle pieces are so everywhere. When God puts it all together, it's going to blow our minds. From here we see Isaac grow up, marries Rebecca. We meet Jacob and Esau. Eventually we meet Rachel, marries Jacob. Eventually we get to a guy named Joseph. These two people that started out in the garden aren't just two people anymore. This is our story. While the nation grows, we see God's promises being fulfilled, the covenants being carried out, but all of the offspring have something in common. Do you know what they have in common? Sinners. They all prove to be sinners. Shadow. A sinner cannot fulfill the substance. But through all of this, something really significant happens, and a people are formed. You should be really thankful that a people were formed, because guess what you sit here as today? A people. A formed people. A called people. An ordained people. A royal priesthood. A nation set apart. We should be very thankful. When we see a people being formed in the Bible, we should say, thank you, God, because I would just be a lone ranger given to my own faculties to be sinful beyond belief. But you called me into a people. People are formed. We're no longer dealing with two sinners in a garden in need of some sinless offspring. Now through the fulfillment of God's promises, we have a nation, but it is a nation still in need. Shadowy anticipation, eager expectation. During their time in Egypt, Israel became as numerous as the stars. They became as abundant as the sand. And through the hardship and through the plagues come a time called 
Passover, where the shadow begins to grow even more exponentially. Turn to Exodus 12. The setting here is that the nation Israel is still enslaved in Egypt. These are our people. We need to read this looking at our people enslaved. The final plague has been threatened. Israel is a sinful nation in need of a savior, and they are on the receiving end of injustice and oppression from another sinful nation. So for the enslaved Jews, there's still a very real anticipation of a savior and a redeemer who would free them. They probably all had a picture of him in their head, of what he would look like, what his voice would sound like as it boomed forth. They were anticipating, have no doubt about it. But God goes to even further lengths to grow the shadow in what will be known as the Passover. And in Exodus 12, we're going to read verses 1 through 13. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, this month shall be for you the beginning of months. He's saying to them, he's saying, boys, Things are changing. Times are being made new. This month is going to be the beginning of months for you. Tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household's too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. Here, again, you just see a people being gathered over and over and over again. According to what each can eat, You shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish. Don't bring me the three-legged lamb with one eye. Bring me the one without blemish. Don't give me your least. Give me your best. A male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of the month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the doorposts and on the lintel of the houses in which they eat. They shall eat the flesh that night roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roasted its head with its legs and its inner parts, and you shall let none of it remain until morning. Anything that remains until the morning you shall burn. In this manner you shall eat it, with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. For I will pass through the land of Egypt that night, and I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. Look at the offspring. He's striking the offspring. I will strike the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. And look at this. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. Do not miss that the blood of the lamb is what protects their offspring. The other offspring won't be protected without the blood of that lamb. Here's what I want us to see in this growing shadow. God in his infinite wisdom chose to take the nation Israel who is in desperate need of some sinless offspring 
And in that need, God institutes a feast. And it's not just a feast they're going to have one time. It's a feast that will be kept throughout all the generations, even this generation, to the degree that we will take the Lord's Supper here in a few moments. A feast to be kept. And not just any feast, a different, distinct feast. I want you all to see that God designed it, that his people would keep a feast in which his people would be covered in the blood of the Lamb, a lamb without blemish, a male, a lamb in his first year, a lamb who would be fully consumed, a lamb who would not have one bone broken, a lamb who would take away their sins. So what we're left with this morning, I mean, you might be thinking, is that the end of the sermon? Yep. I wish I got to preach the third and the fifth one, like right now. I just want to throw down on it. Is that the end of the sermon? Uh-huh. I want you to be looking down that walkway, seeing that shadow come up. I want you to see it coming through the glass. I want you to have that anticipation that our forefathers had. I want you to see your sin for what it is. And be eager to see the one in whom there is true substance. What we're left with as we consider the story of a people of whom we are part of is this big, big shadow. Two sinners in need of sinless offspring in a garden became a nation of sinners still in need of that same sinless offspring and today sit here as a priesthood, a royal nation set apart of sinners in need of sinless offspring. But even the best of our people were and are but a shadow any goodness that you have is only a reflection of light that doesn't belong to you. It belongs to another. It's been granted to you. And as the nation eagerly anticipated freedom from oppressive slavery, God doubled down on the angst and increased the shadow, and he instituted a gathering that would take place throughout all generations. And by God's design, he wants you to keep your eye on the offspring at a table that's centered on a lamb. He makes himself very clear over and over and over and over again in every generation. Keep your eye on the offspring and gather at the table. It's centered on a lamb. So we're going to take the supper. As we take the supper this morning, let us do so soberly. Really consider Christ. Let us anticipate Christmas with our forefathers. As we sing words like we sang earlier, let our hearts prepare him room. Ask, is there room in my heart? Is there anticipation? Is there shadowy angst and anticipation for me? Or am I focused on all these other things? Am I considering Jesus? Let our hearts prepare him room. Let us anticipate Christmas with our forefathers who were eager for sinless offspring as God created in them a growing adoration for the Passover lamb that kept them from his wrath. We can take this supper with joy this morning, knowing that God provides a way to keep us from his wrath. We eagerly anticipate the substance through the shadow. Let's pray. Lord, let us take the supper this morning with a right, eager anticipation. Let the shadow inform us as you see fit. 
let us hear all of this story over a couple, at least a thousand years we covered this morning, maybe a little more. And let us sit with our sinning forefathers. Let us sit here saying, is there more? I hope there's more. The shadow is doing something in us, and I I hope that's good, and I pray it's spirit-led. So let it cause in us an appreciation for substance, which is what this time of year is really about. Not just this time of year, but every moment of every day because we're a redeemed people. We love you, Lord. We humble ourselves before you as we take the supper in anticipation. In Jesus' name, amen. As we passed out the supper, couldn't help but notice the abundance of little offspring we have in the room. A bunch of little babies. And uh, there's encouragement there. It's a reminder that there's a real need for endurance. There's a real need to remain steadfast as, as generations are behind us and generations are in front of us. And we have a message that we bear. And I was thinking of Romans uh, 15. You may be thinking, as you heard the message morning, you may be thinking, I didn't really hear anything new. We've gone through all that. We spent a lot of time in Genesis and Exodus on Wednesdays. Um, there's a, I've heard that. It may not be something new, but I want us to remember why it's there. God intentionally has us revisit things we've heard over and over again. He does it for this reason. Romans 15 verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and, endure and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. In remembrance of Christ, take and eat. Take and drink. Brad? Before we take our offering this morning, I want to call your attention to something. One of the things over the last couple of years that the elders and deacons have um, come to appreciate and um, really always knew it was there, always really appreciated it, but really have come to appreciate is our relationship with the International Mission Board. And for those of you that don't know what that is, the IMB, the International Mission Board, is a, basically a company that partners with like-minded churches to facilitate the sending of families overseas to the far corners of the field. And so Crosspoint has two families who they facilitate the sending. And what I mean by that is they take care of salary, insurance. They take care of team, teammates, making sure they understand security. They give them a team. And there's a real partnership that takes place there. Now, how does that company pay for those families to do all that and it's through cooperative giving from churches like ours all across the world who give cooperatively into that and so cross point gives a portion of our monthly income to that cooperative giving program but there's something that we've never really put in front of you prominently here that we're going to start doing the deacons and elders especially the deacons who are overseeing and working with our missionary families. 
have decided that we're going to, during this Christmas season, we're going to get, we're going to really put this Lottie Moon Christmas offering in front of you. Now, Lottie Moon may be another word some of you aren't familiar with. Lottie Moon was a missionary who had a heart for the unreached people in China over a hundred years ago. But not only did she give her life and go to China, but she, she was very good at and felt very compelled to recruit others to go. And so, the, in celebration of her life, her calling, uh, they've named this Christmas offering after her, Lottie Moon. And so, for the next four or five Sundays, we want to ask and call on you, the families of Crosspoint, to pray about and consider giving a special gift to this Lottie Moon Christmas offering. And, and let me tell you where, what happens. A hundred percent of that money goes to supporting families like the Huck. Would you consider with your family and pray about a special gift during this Christmas season? And hopefully we'll do this every year. And, uh, and, and next Christmas we'll do this again. And we will pray through and think through and consider giving sacrificially to support these families. Here's how we're going to do it. There is an envelope that looks like this. It has the word obedient on it. And they're not in uh, the chairs, but they are on that table out there. And you can put a check or cash in there and your gift in here and put it in the um, offering this morning or anytime you can bring it by the office. If you want to combine your gift and write one check with your offering, um, you want to give your offering to Crosspoint your weekly or monthly offering, and you want to also put an extra amount on that check just where it says other on here on our regular envelopes, just write Lottie Moon gift, and you can itemize it on the outside. Don't write it on the check, but itemize it on the envelope. If you have any questions about that, about our partnership with the IMB or this offering, ask any elder, uh, uh, any deacon, overseeing finance and any deacon that's overseeing any missionary family will be able to tell you how sweet the partnership has been, especially in the last two years. It has really proven to be teamwork. And they are our teammates in sending our families. And so um, let's pray together before we, we, we give this offering today. Uh, remember, this is our offering that we give regularly to Cross Point, but then an opportunity to give to the Lottie Moon Christmas offering over the next four Sundays. And if you would, take an envelope home and consider that and pray about that in the next few weeks with your family. Father, we are a privileged people living here in abundance. And I pray that you would move our hearts to give sacrificially and to give with our eyes wide open and to give faithfully and cheerfully out of our abundance but God, that we would consider our partnership and the gift that is this opportunity to give, this, the gift of the opportunity to partner with uh, the IMB and partner with other families and other churches who are sending families to the far corners of the field. And I pray that we would be faithful with this and that you would bless it and you would grow the gifts that we bring and the offerings that we bring. And we pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. A uh, brief announcement. And I want to announce with Psalm, if I can do that, which I'm going to. Psalm 96. I want you to watch the verbs. 
Listen for the verbs. These are good, important verbs. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord. Bless his name. Tell of his salvation from day to day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols. But the Lord, our Lord, made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. More verbs. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Tremble before him all the earth. Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established. It shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. Some sweet verbs here. The psalm is almost finished, but I want to remind you of the verbs before I read the rest of it. Sing, bless, tell, declare, ascribe, bring, come, worship, tremble, and say. All those verbs that he says right here, the psalmist says, the families of the peoples do. When we do those things, here's what happens. Let the heavens be glad. The heavens are just glad. Let the earth rejoice. Now here we're talking about creation earth. All creation is in labor pains right now, anxiously awaiting Christ's return. And all creation anxiously lets here, rejoices. Let the sea roar. Let all that fills it roar. Let the field exult and everything in it. Then shall all the trees of the forest sing for joy. Yesterday and today have been especially windy. Watch those trees as they blow, singing. Watch them clapping their hands before the Lord. For he comes and he comes to judge the earth. He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. I'm announcing with this psalm to announce this Wednesday night, we're going to have a time where we gather at 6 o'clock, families of the peoples, to ascribe, to tell, to sing, to bless, to declare, to worship and tremble and say. Even if you're not a normal, typical Wednesday nighter, that's okay. This Wednesday night, we're going to gather right here, and we're going to sing. We're going to have a couple of microphones set up, and we're going to give the people of God, the families of the people, an opportunity to ascribe and declare and tell what God has done and is doing for you. It might be a new marriage. It might be a sustained marriage. It might be a healthy year. It might be a new child. It might be a new job. It might be a new place to live could be anything he has bathed us in blessing and ultimately what it will be for every single one of us is the offspring of eve crush the head of the serpent we have a lot to ascribe and a lot to declare come wednesday night at 6 p.m and we'll do that together here in the sanctuary and bring children this will be everybody the other thing i want to share with you is a benediction this morning y'all stand and i'll dismiss you
with this benediction. We're going all kind of crazy this year with Advent and a benediction. Thus says the Lord, stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths. Where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for your souls. Amen and amen. Y'all have a great week.